This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, that's me, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Well, for those of you who have been listening to this show for quite a while, you know that Chris is running for Congress. He's running for Congress in the 1st District of Illinois, and he has six days until that election. So I think it's safe to say that he has better things to do right now than be on this podcast. Well, maybe not better things, but more pressing things to do than be on this podcast right now. Uh, And I hope everybody says a prayer for him. Uh, You know, campaigns are tough. Uh, They take they take a heavy toll, not only on the candidate, but take a heavy toll on the family. Uh, When somebody runs for office, it's not just a decision that they make themselves. It's a decision that they should make with their family because it is it takes so much from you. And when you have somebody like Chris, who's a hard worker, who's going to do everything uh, at the top of his ability, who's always going to take care of all of his responsibilities. Running for office is not easy at all, especially when you're still pastoring a church, when you're a community leader, when you have a family and all these other things going on. So say a prayer for Chris. He's got six days left. Maybe when this comes out, five or so days left before that vote. And so uh, we are praying for him. I know that he's here in spirit. He will be back. He's just got some serious business to take care of right now. And let me tell you this. You you know that we don't endorse anybody here, but just watching what he's done, he's run his campaign with nothing but integrity. Uh, Chris has run his campaign standing on all the things that the Ann campaign stands on. He didn't hide any of his values. He didn't hide any of his beliefs. He talked about being able to represent others who believe differently. But he stood on the gospel. He stood on what he believes. And so he's not here right now. But I just want to give a shout out to Chris for running a very strong race. Uh, I know a lot of you out there hoping that he gets that win. We'll see what happens. But I'll tell you, he's run a very strong race and can be very proud either way. And I'm not saying that because I think something necessarily is going to happen. I'm saying regardless of what happens. I know what type of race this brother ran and just am so proud of how he's conducted himself. And I know he's formidable, man. So I know some folks are out there nervous uh, about the campaign that he ran and the potential of what he can get done. So shout out to him. A lot of hard work. Shout out to his family. Um, and we'll continue to pray for him in that regard. Now, you know, we like to start uh, the the Church Politics podcast with a little bit of sports talk. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that the Golden State Warriors are now the the champions 
Uh, they won the the NBA Finals earlier this week. Uh, and you just got to give a shout out to, to my man, Stephen Curry. Stephen has changed the game. He has solidified his place at the table of the NBA's all-time greats. And it's hard to say that anybody in modern sports almost, but certainly in the NBA, has changed the game the way that he's changed the game. Like we know LeBron's, we know LeBron's a man. We know he he's good. He's not the goat, uh, but a lot of what he's done, the great things he's done, has been based off just pure ability, right? And I think he's changed the culture of the game to some extent. But actually, changing how the game is played, I don't know that anybody in recent history has changed it in the way that Curry has. This brother started up, started pulling up from half court. And then everybody else wants to start pulling up from half court, right? So it's changed how you had to guard people. It's just changed offense in the game. Some people like to change. Some people don't like to change. But it has happened. And he had that sort of impact on uh, on what's going on in the NBA. So you got to give him a shout out there. Um, I've never really been a Celtics fan. You know, I grew up a Bulls fan. Uh, and so you would never root for the Celtics ever. But I got to admit, man, the Celtics had some young players that had me excited about what they were doing. They had a really good defense. Uh, I think obviously some of the cats who are supposed to come to play didn't have the best series. But I think that's a team with a bright future that I'm certainly going to keep my eye on. I think we'll continue to make the NBA a very exciting league to watch. So we'll just have to keep our eye on that stuff. Again, shout out to the uh, Golden State Warriors. They got it done. As long as it wasn't the Lakers, y'all know I'm, I'm good. So uh, I ain't shed no tears over that. <laughs> we'll be ready for next season. But guess what? What this means really is we go through baseball season. I know we got some baseball fans. But what this means to me is we're one step closer to football season. So I'm excited about that. My little league team has already started practicing. We're getting it in, having a lot of fun. And uh, I'll keep y'all posted on how that goes, too. Well, as always, man, before we get into it, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Very few, uh, you know, folks can come in and and really be a a good partner in the way that Fetzer has. Uh, We talk about some really tough issues. We try to do so with care. We try to do so with compassion. Uh, But I really appreciate a partner who may, you know, who supports groups with a lot of different beliefs, but never trying to change what we talk about. Obviously, that's not on the table for the and campaign. We know that y'all trust us and we take that very seriously. And we believe what we're doing is a ministry on behalf of the church. So, you know, our values and what we say isn't on the table, but it's still good to have partners that understand that, that respect that. We'd like to thank the Fetzer Institute for being supportive of what we're trying to do. But let's get into it, man. I got some serious issues we got to talk about. We're going to have to spend some deep thought on uh, some of the subjects that we're touching on today. So we might as well get into it. As usual, you know what it is. Grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Hmm. All right. Well, y'all need to know this. All right. Every election cycle, each party strategizes on how best to frame the coming election. They commission polls. They examine what's popping in the news and the media, and they evaluate the other party's strengths and weaknesses, along with assessing their own strengths and weaknesses. They take all this and they develop an angle and talking points that will guide their approach in the election cycle. Now, from what I can tell, one of the Democratic Party's talking points for this election cycle, it looks like it's going to be we might lose our democracy. 
we might lose our democracy. In other words, they're saying American democ- America's democracy is on the line during these midterm elections. Now, how do I know that this is being said? Well, when you hear leaders and operatives say the same thing over and over again, usually that's not a coincidence. Usually that's by design. Now, I do want to note that just because it's a talking point doesn't mean there's no truth behind it. So that's not the suggestion that I'm making. I mean, let's be honest. After January 6th, uh, after President Trump urged the Georgia governor and then the Georgia secretary of state to find votes and then created a whole stop the steal movement behind that lie. I don't think it's a reach. I don't think it's too much to suggest that we could run into a constitutional crisis in 2024 based on what happens in 2022. I, I, I'll be honest with you right now. I, for one, worry if activists on either side are going to be willing to accept a loss in the presidential election. But what do I mean about this this constitutional crisis? Let me be more specific about that. What, what do you mean we could run into a constitutional crisis in 2024 based on what happens in 2022? And here's what I mean. Let's say that it looks like Trump is going to lose the election in 2024 and Pennsylvania elected a Trump-loving governor and secretary of state in 2022. Hypothetically, that person could refuse to certify a Democratic Party win in their state. They could start playing games, procedural games based on procedural matters and, and kind of muck things up. Or they could do something like send electors in the Electoral College to Trump who, based on the vote, were supposed to go to Biden or whoever is going to be the candidate on the other side. That could happen. I'm serious. That would be what we call a constitutional crisis. I don't think a lot of people understand, and maybe you don't have a whole lot of reason to to, to have taken a deep dive and, and have a deep understanding of this, but I don't think a lot of people understand how big a role state governments play in national elections. And how these state elected leaders have discretion that could blow up the system. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad for the states to have that power. That is part of federalism. Okay, I'm not saying it's bad, but I do want you to realize I do want you to be aware of what can happen in these instances and how if you have the wrong people in positions of authority, people who follow conspiracy theories or people just who have low integrity that we really could have a constitutional crisis on our hands and our democracy could be at risk. I think we'd be foolish to dismiss that possibility. Now, I say this, and I guess the the conclusion that I'm drawing is that those party talking points aren't without merit. I don't think they're just talking. You even heard it coming from people such as former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Right. See, she recently said that we're standing on the precipice of losing our democracy and everything that everybody else cares about then goes out the window. If our democracy were to fall apart, you may care about climate change. You may care about pro-life issues. If our democracy kind of falls apart and the system doesn't hold up in the way that it held up in 2020, then we are in a lot of trouble. This is the, you know, we might lose our democracy. Our democracy is is at stake, is what you hear folks saying over and over and over again in the Democratic Party. This is the this is the talking point that that they're pushing. 
right? And again, I think I have a fairly trained eye when I hear something over and over again from certain people. You kind of gather the fact that this is going to be something that's going to be pushed by the, the the party, or it's like a trial balloon, right? They're sending it out, see how people respond to it, and there may be some other things that they test. But what I don't think we can lose sight of, even with these talking points, is there are some far right candidates, and they're so unyielding with their their support of Trump, they're almost unethical with their support uh, and their commitment to Trump. It is cause for alarm. So even if you don't support the Democratic Party, um, and you don't think they're they're being straightforward with that line, I think you still can admit, yeah, there could be a potential problem here. And so maybe some would say, hey, it's it's refreshing to see that the Democrats, that we have a party that's so concerned about democracy. Maybe they'll even put partisan polarization aside for the sake of saving the democracy in this election cycle. Maybe that's where we're going. Not so fast. Uh, this is this is somewhat disappointing, but I, not so fast. That's that's not exactly what's happening here from everybody or from the party as a whole. And, and here's why I say that. In a New York Times article, Jonathan Wiseman uh, exposed, exposes really what I see to be an extremely problematic effort that's occurring in the Democratic Party. Uh, in the article, he says this. Even as national Democrats set off alarms over the threats posed by far right Republican candidates, their campaign partners are pursuing an enormously risky strategy, promoting some of those same far right candidates in GOP primaries in hopes that extremists will be easier for Democrats to beat in November. So what we have happening here is people sounding the alarm. And I'm not going to say that the people sounding the alarm aren't being genuine. I'm not going to say that's not sincere. But why Democrats as a whole are sounding this alarm, you have Democratic operatives actually supporting far-right candidates in their Republican primaries because they think they'll be easier to beat. As Wiseman said, the concern here is obvious. In a year when soaring gasoline prices and disorienting inflation have crushed President uh, Biden's approval ratings, Republican candidates who Democrats may deem unelectable could well win on the basis of their party affiliation alone. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not weighing in on who I think should win. I'm not weighing in on who I think should control Congress or should control one state or another. But I would think that most of the audience uh, for the for the church politics podcast understands why we would not want somebody who believes in stop the steal, who still thinks the election was stolen, being the governor or secretary of state of any state. Right now, there are plenty of Republicans who don't believe that and who are running. But guess what? The Democrats are supporting the ones who do believe that because they think they're easier to beat. Let me give you some examples. Pennsylvania's Democratic Party singled out uh, State Senator uh, Doug Mastriano during his successful quest for the Republican nomination for governor, despite his propagation of false claims about the 2020 election and his attendance at the January 6th protest behind the White House that immediately preceded the Capitol riot. And in Colorado, 
a shadowy new group called uh, Democratic Colorado is spending nearly $1.5 million ahead of the state's June 28th primary to broadcast the conservative views of state representative John Hank- Ron Hanks, who hopes to challenge Senator uh, Michael Bennett, an incumbent Democrat. I don't know about y'all, but this is very dangerous and beyond cynical. The losing democracy point, like I said, has merit. That talking point to me has merit. But it goes from being sincere and helpful to scaremongering when you're actually playing politics with this potential constitutional crisis. So we care so much about democracy. We've got to save our democracy. This is so important. I really believe that. But we would rather prop up somebody who we know puts democracy at danger for our party to win than to say, you know what, I'd rather go against the best candidate or the the most healthy candidate on the right or from the Republican Party and take my chances. We're not going to do that. We're going to get the person who who could really put everything at risk because we want to win that badly. What are we doing? We can't with one, you know, with one side of our mouth say that this is a serious issue and on the other side say, hey, let's make sure that we win, though. And so if we got to prop up this person who's truly dangerous and that helps us win, then let's just do it. But really, this points out the brokenness and irresponsibility in both parties. The fact that you have people that can win, uh, that are that, that are promoting these conspiracies in the Republican Party, that they're in a position that they can win. And even with Democrats propping them up, that they could potentially win. And you have people that would believe what they're saying and buy into what they're saying. And then on the Democratic side to say, yeah, we have this huge issue. We have a potential constitutional crisis. We could lose our democracy. But behind closed doors, we're popping up folks who we are saying put America's democracy in a bad place. What do we really believe? What are our priorities? What are we putting first, winning as a party or maintaining as healthy a democracy as we can? Now, I want to be very clear. The idea of propping up or supporting the worst candidate on the other side is not new. That's been done for years and years and years. So there's nothing new about that. There's nothing like innovative. This is not the first election cycle that that has happened. But if we really believe that the stakes are this high, Why would either side do something like this? Why would we prop up somebody who could potentially be elected and really damage our democracy for a long time? We're already going to have a lot of activists and folks like that who aren't going to want to accept the results regardless of how fair the election was. We know that there's a critical mass on both sides that just are not going to accept it. Not because they're even going to be looking that closely on how the election was run and how fair it was, just because they don't want to deal with the consequences of the other party getting four more years. And so as folks vote in 2022 in these primaries, some of y'all have already voted. We got to think through this and we got to hold our parties accountable for when they do cynical stuff like this, for when they talk out of both sides of their mouth, uh, when we put when our party on the Republican side uh, is in a position to even have these folks be our representatives. Again, this is you vote for who you want to, but hopefully you can see the cynicism. Hopefully you can see the problem with this issue on both sides and make your decision from there. 
We got to do better. I'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. And I am back on the Church Politics Podcast. Well, I was I was strolling uh, through my, I think it was my Twitter time timeline uh, late last week or maybe early this week. I can't remember. I got a lot going on. Uh, and I ran into an article that was just as interesting or insightful as it was disturbing. And, and this is how it started off. It says that one of the most powerful yet unremarked upon drivers of our current wars over definitions of gender is a concerted push by members of one of, the, of one of the richest families in the United States to transition Americans from a, a dimorphic definition of sex, that's sex being seen as two distinct sexes, dimorphic definition of sex, to the broad acceptance and propagation of synthetic sex identities. According to Jennifer Bilek, who is a writer for Tablet Magazine, Tablet Magazine is kind of like an Orthodox Jewish uh, magazine. But according to, to Bilek, the Pritzkers of Illinois, they're like the fifth, 15th wealthiest family in the world, the worth collectively, I think, uh, $33 billion or something like that. They own uh, Hyatt Hotels. But they have used their family philanthropic apparatus to drive an ideology and practice of disembodiment, according to Bilek, uh, to drive an ideology and practice of disembodiment into our medical, legal, cultural, and educational institutions. In other words, they've worked to normalize transgenderism. But the writer here says that transgenderism doesn't completely explain what the Pritzkers are doing because they completely, they're completely ignoring biological reality of male and female. They're completely ignoring it. Even the transgender acknowledges some level of male and female, right? They're just saying people were in the wrong bodies or whatever. These, This is completely ignoring it. She again calls it synthetic sex identities. Identities completely separate from our biological and physiological makeup. The family, according to Bilek, is working closely with the techno medical complex, big banks, international law firms, pharma giants, and corporate power to solidify the idea that humans are not sexually, again, dimorphic. They're not a sexually dimorphic species, which contradicts reality and the fundamental uh, principle of uh, the fundamental prince, uh, premises, not only of traditional religions but of the gay and lesbian civil rights movement and much of the feminist movement from which sexual dimorphism uh, and resulting gender differences are foundational premises. So this isn't just a violation of what we know as Orthodox Christians 
our religious traditions. This is actually a break from kind of the basis of, of gay and lesbian civil rights movements. There was a dimorphic understanding of the human species. They're trying to completely uh, uh, dismantle that. Right now, the Pritzkers and other elite donors are attempting to normalize the idea that human reproductive sex uh, exists on a spectrum. They want to make that normal. Okay, so here's some of the things they were doing. Let me just give you an example. In 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 2018, uh, at the Ronald Reagan Medical Center at the University of um, California, Los Angeles, UCLA, and this is a place where the Pritzkers are major donors and hold various titles. The Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology advertised several options for young females who think they can be men to have their reproductive organs removed, uh, a procedure termed gender affirming care. So when we hear this euphemism for gender affirming care, which means removing people's organs, right, that, that's a euphemism, right? That's a, a nice way of putting something that is, is a lot more uh, dangerous than it sounds. This group is funding a lot of those uh, efforts, right? Uh, another another instance, they gave thirty million to be invested in the University of Chicago's Biological Sciences Division and School of Medicine. In August uh, twenty twenty one, now this is something I didn't mention. There's a Pritzker who's the governor of Illinois, right? So they're in a lot of different places. They have their philanthropic stuff, and they have someone who's the governor of Illinois. He signed into at law a new sex education bill for all public schools in Illinois. It's the first of its kind designed in accordance with the second edition of the National Sex Education Standards to update sex ed curriculum in K through 12 schools. Uh, one of the things that you get here is within sex education, they'll be teaching transgenderism and all that stuff at a very early age. We're talking about, I think they, kids have to learn it by second grade, third grade or something like that. Okay. This is now part of the new sex education that's being pushed through, as we saw philanthropic efforts, but also through legislation. Okay. Something you got to keep your eye on. Now, the article goes on to say, while many Americans are still trying to understand why women are being erased in language and law and why children are being taught they can choose their sex, the Pritzker cousins and others may be well on their way to engineering, engineer, engineering a new way to be human. A new way to be human. This is what transhumanists that they work with, a transhumanist named Martine Rothblatt had to say. Uh, he said this. We are making God as we are implementing technology that is ever more all knowing, ever present, all powerful and beneficent. That's transhumanist Rothblatt. We are making God as we are implementing technology that is ever more all knowing, ever present, all powerful and beneficent. And all this is being done under the banner of or under the umbrella of human rights, under the umbrella of or auspices of love and compassion. Everybody supports those things, right? This is important to see. And what I want people to know, first and foremost, is that when you hear an effort like this, when you see things changing in how folks talk about certain issues, it doesn't come out of nowhere. 
There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes, a lot of money behind the scenes, a lot of arterial motives behind the scenes, a lot of agendas that you don't see behind the scenes that create movements like this, that change how we hear pop culture talk about something or how we hear them, you know, a medical associations talk about something. It, it doesn't always just occur naturally because one side won a certain debate. Oftentimes, it's being pushed just like we see this pushed today. And we need to realize that. And this is why we need to think through things and not just take it, take things and run with them because we don't necessarily know where they came from. This article starts off by saying, and I think it's a, a very strong way to start the article off, though. But listen to how, how the article starts off. One of the most powerful yet unremarked drivers of our current wars over definitions of gender. One of the most powerful yet unremarked. You have millions and millions and millions of dollars going into this effort. Yet it's unremarked. It seems so na- it seems like it came about so naturally. It seems like it's just about people caring about others when at the end of the day, it's part of a greater agenda that people were putting together. And if we take it and we just take it for what we see it to be, then we're missing a lot of what's going on behind the scenes. And here's my question for Christians who are now affirming transgender ideology. Here's the question that I have to ask you, because let me first say that I think most people are doing this out of a sense of compassion, just like the Pretzkers. I think it's worth noting one of the Pretzker cousins is transgender. And once he came out uh, like that, this is when they started that effort. So many people are doing this out of trying to defend or trying to help people they love, out of trying to affirm the human dignity of people they love. And I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to affirm somebody's human dignity, but I don't think you can play with the truth when you do it. And so that's the difference. But let me go back to my question. My question for Christians who are now affirming transgender ideology is this. What are you affirming exactly? Do you know the end game of the ideology that you've endorsed? Are there any limiting principles? Are there any conditions to your endorsement? Or will you follow wherever pop culture, academia, and these philanthropists lead you? Do you know where you're headed? Do you know where you're taking other people as you uh, prophetize and, and all this other stuff on this issue. As you mission throughout the church, professing the full counsel of the secular progressive sexual ethic and views of gender, are you sure you're not making a God ever more all knowing, ever present, all power, all powerful and beneficent? Are you trying to recreate something that God has already created out of a disordered compassion, a disordered love? You know, I've said this before. I think it's very unfortunate, especially when Christian leaders come out and support a whole philosophy, a whole ideology, and don't give people the limits of that ideology. Don't tell people what to watch out for. Yes, I support transgenderism. What does that even mean? Do you even know where this is going? Are you aware of the idea of synthetic sex identities? 
Are you okay with puberty blockers for kids? Are you okay with their organs being removed? When you make these statements, yes, it may feel like an evolution for you. Yes, it may feel like you're doing the most compassionate thing. I would question that. Do you know everything that you're endorsing and what's going on behind the scenes? I would guarantee you that 99, maybe 90 percent of people who are doing this are doing it with the best of intentions, but don't know where this is going exactly and don't know what's going on, what's going on behind it. Again, we've got to do better. I'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Now, I know those last two subjects were pretty heavy. Uh, hopefully we'll spend some time uh, individually kind of thinking those things through and how we can do better. But we got to bring it to you. Uh, the end campaign wouldn't be doing its job if it didn't talk about some of the harder issues. And hopefully uh, you also spend some time. How can we be compassionate and maintain our convictions? How can we build campaigns and support parties when necessary while also holding them accountable? These are some of the questions that we're asking and the challenges that I'm asking or making of you in this episode. But let's end on a uh, on a better note. Let's end on a bright note. What do y'all think about that? Would you would you appreciate that? I know I do. I don't always like talking about uh, stuff like that, but even when we have to do it. So I'm going to end on a brighter note. Um, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, you probably know that Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Clarence Thomas are not two of my favorite justices on the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, one of them is pretty far to the left. Uh, one of them is pretty far to the right. And I just when I read their opinions and things of that nature, I just don't connect with their opinions and where they're coming from. I don't connect with their jurisprudence in general. I just don't generally not to say all the decisions they made are bad, but a lot of their decisions on the tougher issues, I, I think, are, are are flawed. However, Justice Sonia Sotomayor did something that was really refreshing last week. She complimented, publicly complimented Thomas and talked about their friendship. Here's the quote. She says that Justice Thomas is the one justice in the building that literally knows every employee's name, every one of them. And not only does he know their names, he remembers their family's names and their family's histories. 
He is the one. He is the uh, the first one who will go up to someone when you're walking up uh, when you're walking with him and say, "Is your son okay? How's your daughter doing in college?" He's the first one that when my stepfather died sent me flowers in Florida. He's a man who cares deeply about the court as an institution and about people. Let me say this again. He's a man who cares deeply about the court as an institution and about people. Now, obviously, uh, Sotomayor acknowledged that she and Thomas have very different philosophies. But fundamentally, she says, we share a we share a common understanding about people and kindness towards them. This is major to me. We, we just don't hear stuff like this enough. Today, we have a really hard time believing or admitting that people who we disagree with on very serious issues can be caring, can be nice people, can be well-intended. And what she's saying here is we hardly ever agree, but he's actually a good person. He actually cares a lot about people and takes the time to know people and to know their families. He's a good dude. When's the last time that we said that about somebody that we had very serious disagreements with? Shout out to Sonia Sotomayor uh, for, for for what she said about Thomas. Because we need to hear that. We need to break the narrative of the other side being completely evil and your side being completely good. We've got to break that narrative. It's a lie. You're not completely good. And there's people on the other side who we know are redeemable and maybe better than you on some issues or maybe, maybe care about people better than you do. We've got to be willing to admit that we've got to seek out those kind of friendships to understand where people are coming from. And all this happens within the context of them disagreeing almost every day on very serious issues that certainly impact people's lives and well-being. And they can do that and still be friends and still have an appreciation for how they treat other people. And still have a common understanding about kindness towards other people. We get in our little tribes. We talk and chat about how bad the other side is. And we really buy into the idea that they're irredeemable, that there's nothing to learn from them, that they don't really care about people, that they just their whole goal is to hurt other people or that they're so misled that we can't listen or have a true relationship with them at all. And I'll be honest with you on certain issues. Obviously, I'm not all the way on the right or all the way on the left, but on certain issues where I really, really disagree with somebody, this is something I struggle with, too. Being able to see them as redeemable, being able to see the attributes that maybe I can learn something from. The characteristics or places or things that they do. That are just better practices and disciplines than what I do. I think the media and other folks and leaders should have been shouting about this from the rooftops because it just doesn't happen enough. And guess what this doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that Sonia Sotomayor isn't going to oppose him the next time that he makes a decision or says something she disagrees with. It means there's more to our back and forth. There's more to our relationships. There's more to our friendship than our ideology and our beliefs on those issues. 
this is what civic pluralism looks like. I think what Sonia Sotomayor just said is kind of the basis of understanding a real civic pluralism. That we can disagree, but there's more to it than just our disagreements. Are you, Ann Camp, willing to say the same thing about somebody that you disagree with? It's a lot to think about this episode, so I'm just going to end it there. And Camp, you know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp, we'll holla at you. Take care. I said, kingdom, come through me, rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.